The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. The show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and today. Welcome to a special crossover event podcast episode. It's our very first one doing this between two Beatles podcasts near and dear to my heart, primarily because I contribute to both of them in some ways. But today we will be joining forces the Yesterday and Today podcast and Take It Away podcast to discuss Paul McCartney historiography with two wonderful authors who have fresh releases. You know, you all know me. I'm Paul Kaminsky. (laughs) Listeners of both shows have heard me discuss I am the walrus and water spout or whatever many times. (laughs) Um, And uh, I'm joined, of course, today by Chris Mercer. Chris, hi. Hey, everybody. Nice to be here. Great to be talking to these guys. Mercer, of course, the uh, co-creator and co-host of the Take It Away podcast. Oh, we've got a lot to talk about here today, Chris. Yes, indeed. And then I'm also joined by somebody who I'm probably going to call dad. I'm sorry, everybody. That's a little weird and probably weirder for dad because he has a name. It's Wayne Kaminsky. (laughs) Wayne is the host. And what would I even call you? Like archivist, producer, director, all of that of the Yesterday and Today podcast, which is a chronological journey. Actually, not unlike uh, Lucas' approach to the Music is Ideas book. Skipping ahead a little bit. But, uh, Dad, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for hosting this, Paul. And thank you, Paul. And uh, thank you, Luca and Chris. Dad will also call me Lil Scamp or Tiger the whole time, <laughs> since I'm going to be calling him Dad. Well, maybe we'll all call him Dad and we'll all call you, you know, Little Scamp. Okay, good. I like that. This is good. This is, see, now we're breaking down walls here. I like this. This is great. Uh, so now we'd like to introduce our authors to the program today. And we're very, very excited. We actually have two returning guests in some capacity. One was already featured on the Yesterday and Today podcast, and one was already featured on the Take It Away podcast. But we'd first like to welcome Luca Parasi. Luca, you are promoting your brand new book here, Paul McCartney, Music is Ideas, as well as you know, you were responsible essentially for the the spine, I would say, of the Take It Away podcast, at least in its original iteration with your book, Paul McCartney Recording Sessions, 1969 to 2013. Luca, welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, for this invitation. I'm very proud to be here. And uh, it's, it's a first for me in this uh, show. 
I've been listening to the Take It Away podcast for uh, years, so it's uh, it's good to be in this time. So thank you for the invitation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we're really excited to talk about your book. It's it's a blast. Music as Ideas is great. Yes, it is. And so we'd also like to welcome our returning guest who had appeared on the Yesterday and Today podcast, Paul Sally, author of Little Wing, The Jimmy McCulloch Story. Paul, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Paul. Or I guess welcome back to half the program and welcome freshly to the other half. I don't- That's right. It's nice to have you on Take It Away now. Honored to be here. (laughs) This is just the little scamp up to no good again. I think this is the largest group for either of these shows that we've individually or combined ever done. So this is going to be a lot of fun. So we'll start here today. We're going to talk to Luca first about Music is Ideas. Luca, as most of our listeners, I think by now know, your book, Paul McCartney Recording Sessions, 1969 to 2013, was a major influence and in many ways, the backbone of the original Take It Away podcast. I'm actually holding Ryan Brady's copy of that book here right now, complete with all of his notes. And I want to say a plane ticket to somewhere. So I don't know where he was headed, but uh, it's, it's in here. So while recording sessions had elements of narrative structure, it was, I would say, kind of chiefly a document of McCartney's output, more along the lines of like Mark Lewison's The Complete Beatles Recording Sessions type of thing. With Music is Ideas, you're much more focused on narrative of these recordings, sourcing reflections from the time period or just thereafter, and providing context beyond McCartney's own point of view. This approach, as I mentioned, which is quite similar to the Yesterday and Today podcast, which seeks to avoid spin by sourcing native audio, and in your case, native interview and and text. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to the realization that this let's call it a companion book to recording sessions would be a necessary tool in the telling of Paul McCartney's solo story. Yeah. I mean, it, it was a, quite a longer process, but the Paul McCartney recording sessions was my attempt to, you know, uh, basically doing a book on uh, Paul McCartney's solo career, which uh, is focusing on the music, which is not so, common let me say because when it comes to a biography in the past uh, uh, then the solo years well it takes uh, maybe a few pages and stuff there's a lot of things about the Beatles and, and uh, so it's always uh, been for me quite uh, challenging to find a satisfactory book about the solo period of Paul McCartney so I started collecting uh, a lot of uh, information and material when I was quite younger and put together in a book but I felt it missed something. The complete book on Paul McCartney's recordings, song by song, there's nothing else out there. So my aim was just to provide a simple, let me say, it was not simple to write it, but anyway, (laughs) a simple song by song book on Paul's career, which I have decided to break down in uh, two parts because uh, at some point uh, quite early, I realized that uh, 53 years 54 years of uh, <laughs> solo career uh, would have been a, an impossible task, uh, unreadable and uh, unprintable. Uh, <laughs> so I decided to break it down in two parts. I think it's a good choice. And so that's it. There are uh, many books and other artists which says uh, all the songs, uh, I don't know, Elton John, uh, David Bowie. Uh, there's nothing about Paul McCartney, <laughs> which is quite surprising. And so I feel the gap. It's a big gap, right? I mean, with Paul McCartney, we're talking about a lot of songs. You know, most artists, maybe Prince is the only one so prolific, right? Yeah, there's, a, there's a, an incredible uh, output. Uh, and to do something a little bit different, I have decided also to include in this volume 50 unreleased songs as well. Well, it seemed to me interesting to add uh, this piece because for what we know, Paul McCartney has got uh, also an incredible unreleased backlog of, uh, of songs. So 50 of these uh, are in the book. To me, they were the 50 more interesting tracks or more structured, leaving out uh, jams and, and other demos that were really not uh, be called uh, songs. But it's a nice addition, I think. Mm-hmm. Do you have any personal highlights from those cold cuts? Yeah, I think, uh, well, if I have to choose uh, one, I think it would be Water Spout. <laughs> Naturally. Which, uh, <laughs> I, I think it's a nice 
pop song with a uh, very catchy and uh, an overlapping of melodies. So would have been a hit. I'm quite sure in in the 70s would have been a hit. Probably not if it was published on um, released on on all the best as it was planned. Uh, maybe the 80s were too late, but in the 70s I think would have been a hit. Chris is a fellow defender of Waterspout. Really loves that one. <laughs> yeah, we really like that one on the old show. <laughs> I'm not sure if this is coincidence or correlation or what, but Paul McCartney released in the last two years the lyrics book, which does sort of what you're doing here, but in a much different way. I mean, it's really more an autobiography that he just frames around different songs. I was telling Chris yesterday on the phone, like when you go to look at Golden Earth Girl in the lyrics book, he talks primarily about John Lennon for two pages and has very little mention of even it being about Linda to begin with. So I guess my question for you is, was this a reaction to the lyrics book? Was that a coincidence? And what were your thoughts on the lyrics book? No, it's a, it's a coincidence taking account that I have started planning basically this book that initially was called uh, something like all the songs, something like that, back in 2017. And uh, the first draft of the book was ready in 2020 but then COVID came and so other priorities so I, I put it on hold then it came the lyrics which for me meant doing the translation in Italian because I was appointed as one of the two translators wow from English to Italian so I have received the copies of the international version to be translated in Italian which I did and it was a blast obviously for me, it's still an incredible thing because it, that means I am co-author with Paul McCartney. <laughs> it's Paul McCartney, my name, and, and another translator. So it took a while. It was a, an incredible experience because in some spots, it was quite emotional. I mean, the, there's the introduction where Paul talks about his parents. And believe me, it's quite a task to be appointed as a translator of his words and trying to be in connection with his feelings, with Paul McCartney's feelings about his parents was quite emotional. So it was a, a coincidence. Obviously, I have used some quotes from the lyrics, from the original lyrics. So it could be considered a sort of companion to the lyrics, but it's, it's absolutely a, a coincidence because that, that is uh, the pattern that I have uh, described. Yeah. Is it fair to say, Luca, that Paul's lyrics books really takes the songs in hindsight rather than your book, which really accounts for a lot of the older information about the tune. So you would have, say, McCartney writes, Dress Me Up as a Robber back in 1981 or whatever, 80. And McCartney talks about it as it is today in his mind rather than what it was. Yeah, definitely. It's two different things. For Paul McCartney, doing the lyrics, I think, uh, meant uh, a lot of things. It's a selection of songs, obviously, in his case, so he cannot recall everything. I don't know how they have chosen the songs with the Paul Muldoon. But yeah, I have privileged uh, quotes from the past because when it comes to you know, writing the songs and uh, 
recalling the inspiration when it's fresh in in your mind you can say the the, the truth maybe right <laughs> and then and then it, it starts changing also in your memory so you cannot really remember everything for him uh, as a certain aim for him paul mccartney <laughs> a certain aim the lyrics book for me it's just a more of a historical thing drawing on period interviews i think it makes more sense for a book like this different versions about the same thing i would try to use different versions and present the reader with a number of options over the years it changes mind or it changes version about something similar to jet you know jet used to be a puppy and then it became a horse and then it was a dog yeah jet is a prime example of this thing i was i was saying yes so if it's possible you present um, all the versions <laughs> that have been uh, <laughs> live it uh, through the years and that was it i feel like mary would know like someone just has to ask mary <laughs> once and for all hey you were a little kid at this time that must have left an impression what animal was this <laughs> Some, someone must know no but I, I think in this specific case the thing is that uh, there's not one right version i mean uh, because jet was a puppy definitely because paul said this but it was also a name of a horse. So both things are true. I think the first version is really the inspiration for the song because there was a dog called Jet. The rest came after. And so it could be also a combination of things. And, you know, when, when you're writing a song and Paul McCartney is writing a song, he writes a drawing on, uh, on fantasy and on uh, real things combined together. So it could be anything. Yeah, I don't know if I'm buying the idea that Jet is about anything. (laughs) (laughs) There's there's a lot of ideas squeezed uh, into one song. We're going to come back to Paul McCartney and Music is Ideas in just a moment, but I want to turn our attention now to Paul Sally, author of Little Wing, the Jimmy McCulloch story. Paul, your approach, while different just in terms of structure to Luca's, is kind of similar in the sense that there was this narrative about Jimmy McCulloch that was exaggerated and warped in people's memories, and you sought to set the record straight correct the narrative about what Jimmy meant, not just within the context of Wings, but in the context of his broader musical career, which for such a young man to die at such a young age was really substantial. Now, when last we spoke, it was 2020. I actually had no idea. I had to go back and look in Gmail. I was like, boy, did anyone talk in 2020? This is, I feel like we were all just huddled. No, I guess we had our interview in 2020, which is kind of wild. That was before the book came out. And, uh, you know, I was just looking at some of these reviews and stuff online. A couple quotes I pulled out. I wish I could rate this book more than five stars. Jimmy is up above, smiling down on you. Paul Sally knocked it out of the park with this book. A remarkable piece of work. This is just a couple of the reviews I found online. And it must have been surreal to finally see all your hard work kind of out there in the world. Can you tell us about the experience of releasing Little Wing? 
Yeah, I mean, it was really surreal after 12 years plus of working on it. Wow. And the reviews have been great. Jimmy's family's appreciative of all my efforts and hard work and, you know, they love it. So that's all that really matters to me is uh, that Jimmy finally gets the respect that he deserved. For listeners who haven't listened to the Yesterday and Today interview, can you give us a brief overview of your inspiration for developing the book and the methodology that went into its research? Yeah, no problem. So I saw Wingspan when it aired in 2001. I was 13 at the time. So, you know, being quite young and seeing a documentary about Paul's band after the Beatles, I was really excited. And then when Jimmy popped up on screen, I was pretty taken by him because, you know, he's also was a young guy and he was just so talented. So that kind of hooked me right away. And then as I grew older over the years, I got to thinking, well, you know, there's not really anything out there on Jimmy other than blurbs and Paul McCartney biographies or the rock history books. And it all basically said the same thing. Like, yeah, he's a great guitarist, but he has other issues, which, you know, I felt, well, that's pretty one-sided. So there's got to be more to Jimmy's story than just the narrow-minded views of these biographies. So in 2007, I got in touch with uh, Colin Allen, um, who is Jimmy's songwriting partner and former bandmate in Stone the Crows and the Dukes. And that kicked it off. So the seeds for the book were planted then. And, you know, since then, it's it was a long and winding road for sure. <laughs> Various challenges, but I'm extremely happy with the result. Shout out my editor and layout designer, Mark Cunningham. He did a phenomenal job. He turned my dream into something that was even beyond my wildest imagination. So thanks, Mark. Good job, Mark. And also, no one ever thanks the editor. So thanks, Paul. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I found the book fascinating, actually. There was so many, different, so many different stories that you told in there that I was totally unaware of, right from when he was... No pun intended, right? When he was a little kid, <laughs> right up to, uh, you know, adulthood, really. I don't want to give too much of the book away because I really think, and I encourage a lot of people to read it. One thing that struck me is Jimmy was being courted by David Bowie's people, or actually I think his wife, before taking the job with Wings or while accepting the job with Wings, he's actually being courted and saying, oh, yeah, I'll I'll do that, you know. Uh, I found that story to be really super interesting or the time where Jimmy's brother sat in on drums and he's playing with the band because Joe English wasn't there for whatever reason. You know, there's wow. a lot of cool stories in there. <laughs> I, I wish I had a lot of questions, but I was just amazed by the stories, you know, uh, some of the Thunderclap Newman stories. But what I came across is every one of these people, Pete Townsend was such a father figure to him. But every one of these people that admired Jimmy, they all were saying the same thing. Wow, that guy can play. He's a good mm -hmm. studio musician. But what I got is Jimmy, correct me if I'm wrong, really was a live musician person. He, like Henry McCulloch, liked to change his lead guitar styles during a song, not playing the same thing every night. Maybe you could elaborate a little on that. Yeah, for sure. So there's a quote in the book from Jimmy's brother, Jack, about how Jimmy wanted everybody who came to a Wings gig to feel special. So every night he would change up his solos by a few notes. And then also what I think is really cool is 
he played a different guitar intro to Soily every night on that tour. I don't know if you guys realize that. So I thought that was really cool. I love that. I love the attention given to Soily. Just this unreleased thing. They put so much focus on that, which is great, by the way. It's a great track. It's just wild to me that they elaborated on it in that way. Yeah. the David Bowie thing so he actually Jimmy actually got the job offer from Bowie and MPL on the same day which is pretty wild if you think about it personally I think it would have been interesting to hear what would have become of Jimmy's career if he had joined forces with David Bowie yeah but at the same time as Jack said in the book they knew enough about how David worked at the time through Andy Newman who, of course, was in the Cup Newman with Jimmy and Jack because uh, he knew Angie Bowie quite well. And they really weren't as professional as Paul and MPL. So that kind of put a damper on things. But, you know, it's interesting to, to listen to those 74-ish era Bowie tracks and imagine Jimmy playing on them. Yeah, but don't you think David Bowie and his band would have let Jimmy stretch out a little more than McCartney, who was more structured and say, play it this way. I don't care what you say. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. And then also, while Jimmy was in Wings, he also had an offer to join uh, the James Gang. Mm, he was yeah. super, really close to joining up with them, but Linda actually convinced him to, to stay in the band. Well, speaking of that, I know that Paul allowed Lawrence Juber a good amount of leeway in coming up with stuff. Is it your impression that he did let Jimmy come up with his own parts and do a lot of his own stuff? He did at points. Sorely being a great example, there's an interview with Jimmy, I think from 76 or 77, where he mentions like what Paul's like in the studio. And he said that like 99% of the time, Paul knows in his head what he wants Jimmy to play. Hmm. But I also think that was, well, besides money, but that was part of the issue of Jimmy, who ended up leaving Wings, was musical differences. Hmm. Because also in the book, Jimmy had Medicine Jar and Lionel Junko on Venus and Mars and Speed of Sound. And if I'm sure, obviously, you guys are well aware he didn't have any material on London Town. And that was because Paul dropped the idea of including any of Jimmy's material on any further Wings album. So, ah. did you get any context to that decision at all? Like, it seems so silly. I didn't. I was kind of taken aback by it. I think I'll have to ask a follow up question for that. Because that was just mind blowing to me. Yeah, because it's not like the songs were turkeys; like they're good tracks. No, they're good, and they obviously put a lot of time into producing them. Right. I was watching this McCartney interview from '86 last night because that's what I do with my free time, and he had mentioned in that interview, which is you know sort of just around the time of the release of like Press to Play, to give that context there. But he had mentioned, so he specifically talks about that in that interview. He talks about being accused of being domineering and controlling. And he talked about it specifically within the context of the Beatles and Wings, saying that he was accused of that so much in the Beatles that he tried to not do that in Wings purposefully. And then, of course, he cites the Henry McCulloch, My Love Story, which he always, you know, Paul has his favorite (laughs) greatest hits of stories to bring out in interviews. But it's so interesting to see, like, that's his default. And it's just because, like you said, Paul, I think he could just hear it in his head and there's just this inability to walk that line between confidence and compromise for him. Because he also mentions, like, and then when I'd step back, 
everybody would be like, well, why don't you produce the song? And so I don't think he actually knows how to strike that balance well. And he's just, you know, he's maybe just trying to navigate it as best he can. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, he is Paul McCartney. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure any one of us would have a difficult time trying to walk that line if we were as incredibly talented as he is. Yes. Like in Luca's book, Luca documents Denny Lane actually saying Paul McCartney worked him in the early days like a puppet. That was a quote by Alan Parsons. Alan Parsons, okay. Not referring to Paul and Denny. Because Denny did work out some of his own parts. We talked to him about it. Well, years later, we talked to him about it. Well, I think in the end, uh, this thing has got an answer, probably, at least for me, that uh, in the case of Paul McCartney, the focus is always the song uh, instead of having a band like Wings. If he had a song with a specific arrangement in mind, no problem. If you have two guitarists, uh, well, maybe someone would play bass because uh, two guitars are not needed and stuff. So this is uh, one of the things that we have to consider. So the focus in Carter's mind is the song. So then if uh, the arrangement serves the song and there's no guitar, uh, there's no guitar in his mind. That's for me the main thing about all these kind of issues that were involving uh, various guitarists and probably also, also Jimmy. I mean, it's that age-old discussion was when's a real band and you have yeah. Varying, varying answers from anybody you talk to. Yeah. Yeah. I love the idea that um, Jimmy actually played drums on, I think it was Rock Show or something. Yeah. I found that amazing. <laughs> they had to have two drummers. And Jimmy had a wild style of playing the drums. That was versatile. And <laughs> he was playing the drums. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Paul McCartney let somebody else other than him play the drums? <laughs> Sometimes. our last point i think it was during the back to the egg sessions where paul had a songwriting contest with the members of the band let's see who writes the best song and we'll get it on the album or it'll be the next single and of course paul wins right <laughs> he wrote a particularly wonderful song i mean <laughs> it's daytime nighttime suffering yeah that, that was that was for this song yeah, which this is a quite interesting story. Yes, I agree. It's interesting to uh, to imagine uh, the contest within uh, within the Wings uh, members over a weekend. <laughs> you just see Steve Holly furiously scribbling in the corner. <laughs> Do we know what songs Denny and Lawrence, Linda and Steve brought to the equation, or do we just know it was daytime night game suffering? I never read anything from the other Wings members about their creations uh, mm. of that weekend. No. Be interesting to know. Yeah, that, that's it. Yeah, you're right. Uh, it would be a good question to ask it to Lawrence and Steve, for example. Yeah, that's it. For sure. I wanted to talk a little bit about, and maybe keep this section a bit sort of freeform. We can kind of have a general discussion about it, but I'm struck by the effectiveness of the McCartney counter-narrative against the canonization of John Lennon in recent years. Of course, in the wake of John's murder in 1980, there was this influx of authors and, and music journalists that were quick to present John Lennon as the Beatles, the, the unequivocal leader, the sole driver. And they paid little regard to McCartney's contributions and not even to say anything about George and Ringo, which were even less regarded. And for almost 20 years, I would say, this narrative persisted, and it was driven by people with vested interest in the Lennon legacy, like Yoko and Jan Wenner and people like that. Books like uh, I have over here, Shout, 
these kinds of books really pushed a certain kind of narrative. And I don't think it was until really many years from now in the late 90s where Paul really started to push back in any appreciable way. So I would argue that he's been pretty darn successful in reclaiming that side of the Beatles story. And authors such as yourselves have worked hard to also uncover the truth, I mean, in various different ways with the McCartney contributions over the years. So I guess opening it up to the group, I'm wondering in your eyes... Have McCartney's efforts been successful? And if not, do you think there's still work to be done anywhere to kind of set the record straight on his legacy? I think, not to be morbid, but when he passes away, as it happens with anybody famous who passes away, that you gain a new appreciation of the legacy that they left behind. Personally, I think Paul's done a fantastic job at claiming his stake and not only his Beatles legacy, but his solo material. It's just second to none. But yeah, I think once he's gone, people will go, man, that McCartney, he was a generational talent. And, you know, he's no longer here, but at least we'll always have his music. <laughs> yeah, I agree with Paul. To answer the question, I think McCartney so far was um, quite successful in trying to reclaim more of his disturbed <laughs> legacy. It's not easy. It has been not easy because I think he admitted somewhere, I can't remember which is the exact interview, but he admitted that when you try to reclaim your legacy, people think that you are talking badly about someone which is John Lennon, which is no more with us. So it's always uh, tricky also for him to reclaim this and John not being there. But I think it was something he had to do. At some point, the narrative was not definitely not right. It's hard to do these kind of things, but I can understand his position, obviously. And so, as, as Paul said, uh, yeah, when we will uh, be left to only with Paul's music, there will be a reappreciation, or probably that will be the moment when everybody will understand <laughs> yeah. this thing fully to me it's quite obvious let's see hopefully it will be in the far future that was me at the scout camp in the school play spade and bucket by the sea that was me that was me playing conkers at the bus stop on a blanket in the bluebells that was me stands in now and when I think that all this stuff can make a life it's pretty hard to take it in that was me well that was me Royal Iris on the river Mercy beaten with the band that was me yeah that was me Sweating cobwebs under contract in the cellar on TV. That was me. Luca, reading your book, you know, it's always interesting to me to get to the sections. It was always interesting on the old Take It Away, too, to get to the press, to get to the, the reviews from the time. What do you make of the reaction of critics at the time in the 70s and 80s to Paul's work? It seems really obstinate. Yeah, they'll acknowledge that he's a genius or whatever, and then go on to completely dismiss him. And there's been a lot of reevaluation since those days of quite a few of those albums. What's your take on that? What was happening? Well, I think it's, uh, well, we have to admit one thing that if we take the 70s, it was uh, where critics were quite harsh to Paul in those days. So that means they were quite free to tell what they wanted to tell. Okay, so this is a good thing because maybe they were not intimidated or something. But on the other side, uh, I think they just did something because they knew that talking badly about Paul McCartney's latest album was something that uh, could give you more exposure and more importance, who knows. So I think it's a combination of these two things. But I privileged having the reviews from way back anyway and not having reviews after 20, 30, 40 years. It's a completely different thing. It's a, 
if you want to put these things in a historical perspective, then it makes sense to say, okay, that's what they said at the time, mm -hmm. which makes us laugh, but sometimes, but it's interesting uh, anyway. How much of that fact do you think is because Paul announced that the Beatles were breaking up? Yeah, there's resentment there. And then it's, and Lennon remembers. I mean, and, and that's not all John's fault. That's Jan Winter for putting it in a book form and canonizing it forever. But you have that document of John Lennon taking a big dump over Engelbert Humperdinck McCartney. And then that's perceived by people as the narrative for so long. Then, yeah, I mean, there's an element of you want to believe John, you know, you want to believe the Beatle. <laughs> And Paul is very sort of successful and aloof and, and doesn't really express his emotions in that kind of a direct way. So it's just there's it's hard to combat an artifact like that interview. Well, also, you have to remember coming off the back of the Beatles, you have the first single released is Another Day. And I remember when that was released, people just thought bubblegum. And that was the trend at that point that you would see in Rolling Stone and Circus Magazine and Hit Parader. And but why? Another Day isn't bubblegum. It's very intelligent. Because I think you had Led Zeppelin out at that point. Mm. You had Deep Purple. You had all these power rock groups that right. seemed to be more talented than the Eric Idle singing Another Day, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Which is so funny because George Harrison found all the success, but you listen to like What Is Life and songs like that. I would argue that that's, if they're going to call another day bubblegum, <laughs> then like George falls into that category too. I well, just... that's my other question. Why didn't John come in, for example? I mean, forget George for a second. Why didn't John come in for similar criticism, especially given that he just wasn't as ambitious? Mm -hmm. Listen know. to the Mother album. There you go. Yeah, That's pretty hard right yeah. after the Beatles. That's true, but whatever gets you through the night is not. <laughs> yeah, and at that point, Lennon had come around anyway. I mean, they, they had reconciled for years at that point, and it's great. There's a portion in the biography of Jan Wenner, the author's name escapes me, where they found in Jan Wenner's archives the postcard that John Lennon had sent to Jan Wenner, including a photograph of he and Paul together at that Santa Monica beach house in 74, and the caption read something to the effect of, how do you sleep? And he called him, uh, what, Jan Wieners or something like that. <laughs> it was a typical Lennon like slam or something. But it's just, it's really funny to me that their relationship was really more or less repaired by 74, 75. I mean, to the point where they nearly worked together again. But Lennon, I think, also tried to correct the record a little bit, but it's just really hard to do at that point. You know, the damage had been done. Who's got a mic besides me? Come on. Somebody join in. Hey! Okay. okay. Yeah. Hey, hey. McCulloch wanted to work with John Lennon? I haven't heard that. But, I mean, he would have welcomed it, I'm sure, during the Venus and Mars sessions. Mm -hmm. I know but, he was uh, a big fan of the Beatles. Yeah, yeah he, he saw them uh, when he was just a kid yeah. in 63. But, yeah, um, it was 63, I remember. Yeah, but, uh, but yeah, going back to, um, as you were saying, like the narrative of just getting stuck in people's minds – that's definitely been the case with Jimmy ever since he who should not be named's book came out in 92 with those awful stories about Jimmy, you know, wanting to off the McCartney's and, yeah, you know, so that's probably the biggest myth that I had to debunk in my book. Hmm. As Jack said, you know, it's amazing how an argument could turn into this 
ridiculous story that grew legs over the years. And, you know, even since the book's been out for a couple of years now, people still believe the gun story, which is unfortunate, but. Did the gun story come entirely from that one book? Yes. Yes. Hmm. Wow. It's, I remember reading that and not believing it and thinking, how do you know? Who's the witness to this? It comes off as a really bad piece. It was Jack. Fan fiction. <laughs> and also in that same book, I don't know if you remember, he included a photo of Jimmy. And then underneath, it was like a grisly photo of Jimmy McCulloch taken by Scotland Yard or something. Mm. I debunked that as well. Jimmy's alive and well in that photo. Mm-hmm. The thing is, everybody is labeled to some extent. So Paul in the 70s has been labeled because he was uh, maybe responsible for the end of the Beatles. And he has this family man image that <laughs> I don't know why, but probably it was not that good for some uh, critics. I don't know. I don't know. But there was certainly a label attached to also to, to Paul McCartney, especially in the 70s and also in the 80s, let me say, because also the 80s were not that good for him in terms of critics. Huh? Yeah, the 90s too. I mean, it's really, I think the turning point, and this is just me going from memory, but I think the turning points around Driving Rain, I remember Rolling Stone gave Driving Rain of all things, like the stellar review, and it gave it all these stars and everything like that. And I remember thinking like, really? But since then, it's been one of those things where all of the reviews, I think, usually skew toward Paul's a legend, yada, yada, on that era and beyond. And I think it's easier to take pot shots when somebody is so clearly commercially successful. And everyone, even when Paul wasn't commercially successful, everyone was sort of sitting around waiting for him to become commercially successful as a solo artist because they knew he was capable of it. Like you listen to Derek Taylor or even John Lennon at the time saying, I know Paul's going to do a good one. These last two were garbage, but he's got a good one in him. (laughs) And I disagree with that assessment, but they were right in the sense that I think with his work ethic and natural talent, it was only a matter of time to get to the place Paul was at in 76, which was kind of back to being king of the world again. I mean, you have Donnie and Marie singing silly love songs. Yeah, it's just sort of weird that it it comes so naturally to him at a certain point in time, but it's easy to to mock the successful. And in the early 80s, same deal. Tug of war, big, big success. Say, 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 as much as people want to knock it, or Ebony and Ivory for that matter. Ebony and Ivory was, uh, what was it, number one on both sides of the Atlantic or maybe number two in England or something like that? I think it was number one on both, yeah. Yeah. I was uh, 13, 12, 13 at the time, and these two songs that you mentioned uh, were the songs that introduced me to Paul McCartney, exactly because they were, well, they were successful. And in, in the case of Michael Jackson, well, Michael Jackson was my hero at the time. And then I switched to McCartney in a snap. I mean, <laughs> after I had uh, Pipes of Peace LP because I liked this kind of things that I was hearing. That happened to me. I mean, so it was a really a smart move to have these two songs with two artists at the time. So to me, it's a successful thing that he has done. easy to knock down people from a pedestal i think is the thing and, and then broad street was just used as an excuse mm. for the knives to come out which by the way i don't mind broad street at all in fact first of all the album's great and the movie really is not offensive it's just like when you hear these critics talking about it 
they frame it like, oh, who does he think he is? It's just like, just yeah. watch. It's yeah. like people who criticize like the Mario Brothers movie. It's like, guys, this is a movie for children, everyone. Like, we can all see Mario jump on Luigi or whatever, and it's fine. It's like, it's Paul McCartney's singing on the big screen. Just enjoy yourself. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> it's going to be one of those days. I just wanted to get everybody's thoughts on the new Man on the Run documentary that's coming out next year. I'm curious because it seems like it's going to focus on wings again, and I feel like we had that already. So I'm actually wondering why he's not going a bit broader with it, or if he does. I don't know. It just seems like we we covered that ground. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy yeah. to have it. You know, it'll be a nice thing to have. But it's like uh, Band on the Run has been re-released like 90 times, and at a certain point, I'm like, we understand. It's a good album, Paul. Like, we get it. <laughs> but like, just give us London Town and Back to the Egg, please. I'm ready for that deluxe press to play. You know, I'm holding out hope on, on the remastered Yvonne. <laughs> I love press. But can I just say, 80s McCartney is actually my favorite McCartney. It's actually the music I come back to just naturally the most. Like if I'm hmm. going on a long car ride, usually it's press to play. Well, yeah. having said that, Paul, what did everyone think of the new AI version of I Don't Know, oh, which man. gives you the 80s McCartney? I try to avoid everything that has anything to do with AI. Do we really need this? <laughs> I know that uh, we are not going to stop this thing happening, and uh, there will be many things, uh, also good things, probably, happening with this, but not all things will be good. And I don't think we need uh, to apply this artificial intelligence to Paul McCartney songs. I mean, they have been done, recorded, released. <laughs> In most of the cases, there are great songs, so I don't know. Really, I, I don't need it. I'm of two minds on it, too, because without it, we wouldn't have Get Back the way it is, right? So, I mean, and that's a good use of, of AI. And I'm going to speak for the room here and saying it's a good thing that the Get Back documentary happened. But I heard that I don't know thing the other day, and I was just thinking, like, boy, you remember when you were on LimeWire, and it's like, Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles perform, and you're like, this is, I think, a monkey song. What are they talking about? I really, really, really worry that this stuff is going to take hold and be perceived as a real thing at some point. It's just going to get so muddy. L.S. Bumblebee, if anyone remembers that, that was supposedly the Beatles. Or John Lennon. Oh, man. That goes back many years. For you, for you kids, look it up. <laughs> there is a little insect not many people see. He's known to all the insect as the endless bumblebee. So when you hear him coming, just throw away your tea. That psychedelic humming will mean you'll soon be free. Oh, druggy, druggy. Freak out, baby. The bee is coming. <laughs> I think it'll just, this AI stuff will kind of be like the deepfake stuff you see in Star Wars, Marvel. The technology is advancing every day it'll it's be unrecognizable people will be able to make music now without making music at all i don't remember where i read it but they compared the ai of today as what the internet was in 99 hmm. which is mind-blowing yeah just a whole lot of chat rooms we're talking who were we who were we chatting with at the time the, <laughs> I, I i i gotta say the the uh, temptation is there because and that's for me, my perception of it as the dangerous thing, because do we all want to see young Harrison Ford again? Yeah, of course we do. I think about your initial reaction to I don't know the song, the real song, often. Mm -hmm. I don't know why, but for some mm -hmm. reason, that your reaction to that stuck in my head, listening to it as a fan of your show at the time, because you were so happy that Paul was embracing his natural voice it sounded vulnerable actually and that i agree with regardless of your take on the voice i really struggle with the old man paul voice now it's not something he can help but i really struggle with that sometimes i find it actually a little hard to listen to and so when i saw here's 70s paul mccartney sing i don't know <laughs> I, I was like 
all right, let's let's take it for a spin. <laughs> and but it sounded wrong and it sounded off even though I prefer that version of his voice. It's so untrue that it just made my skin crawl. And again, this is coming from a guy who's like, "Great, we're going to have CGI Bruce Willis forever. Awesome. Let's do it everybody." But I don't know, man. It's just it's depressing at a certain point. The great thing is is also seeing an artist like Paul McCartney, but all artists uh, aging. I mean, the fact yeah. is that I, I don't I don't need for listening to Paul McCartney's young voice all the time. I, I don't care. I mean, uh, the, the good thing is having different eras, different periods, different voices, even struggling. It's human thing. Music is a human thing. It comes from uh, our brain. It has a lot of uh, positive things coming with it. So uh, not, it's not a problem uh, listening to Paul McCartney's voice as a uh, 70 or 80-year man, for me at least. Well, it's Paul's choice to keep singing, too. You think of, a, of an artist like Burt Bacharach, who sang sometimes, and it was kind of cute that he sang in his weird old voice. He wrote for other people. Paul could have made that transition, but didn't. Chose to keep being a singer-songwriter. That's his choice, really. I don't mean to disparage his more recent records. In fact, I quite love them. I was just thinking the other day, it's just like, yeah, are they all classics? Like, I perceive his 70s and even into the 80s work. No, but like, I don't want to live in a world without Queenie. I like, I really like that song. I think he's actually, and it's, yeah, he's singing in his natural voice there, more or less, and he sounds really good. Yeah. I got crows at my window, dogs at my door. I don't think I can take anymore. What am I doing wrong? I don't know. My brother told me. And Luca, are there other artists that you would like to look at in this level of detail? Or is it a one-time thing that you write Little Wing or that you do something like Music as Ideas? That's a good question. At the moment, no. I consider Little Wing to be my life's work. And, you know, no artist has had quite the impact on me that Jimmy has besides Paul McCartney. So at the moment, my answer is no. But who knows down the line? All right. Yeah, my answer is yes because I'm uh, quite close to finishing uh, a book on Peter Gabriel, which is another of my favorite artists. And it will be along the lines of this uh, music is ideas, the source behind the songs. So it will be a book on uh, the source behind the songs of Peter Gabriel, which uh, will be out, I think, at the end of the year or something like that. Oh, fantastic. I recall that when we spoke to you last time, you mentioned the possibility of Peter Gabriel. So in that time, you've actually pursued it. Yeah, I think uh, it's finished, basically. But the thing is that Peter Gabriel is not deciding on releasing this uh, I.O. album. <laughs> I need to wait until until all the songs are out. Otherwise, it would be uh, not all the songs, but nearly all the songs, almost all the songs. And I don't want to do it. <laughs> and I'm guessing Peter Gabriel not prolific anywhere near to the extent of Paul or... No, uh, we know that Peter uh, hasn't released an album in uh, 21 years. Well, I'm wondering about behind the scenes, unreleased things. and There's not that much. I mean, uh, w- when it comes to a comparison with McCartney, uh, <laughs> it's, it's always, uh, you lose. <laughs> Unless you're Prince. <laughs> or Ringo for some reason. It was actually Ryan that got me listening to Peter Gabriel for the first time in any real way. Uh, he had chosen... The third one. I don't know what you call it. As somebody who's a Peter Gabriel fan, what do you even call these albums? I don't know. But it's the third one, the melting one. And I was really surprised by 
how simultaneously abrasive, but also incredibly warm and personal that music is at the exact same time. up here a little bit and thank Paul Sally and Luca Parasi so much for joining us on the show here today. Before we end the program, we have a couple of announcements. We're going to talk a little bit about the futures of both of these respective Beatles podcasts. Dad, what's coming up in yesterday and today? What are you on right now aside from just a just a lot of drugs? But what are you uh, what <laughs> year are you on in the yesterday and today podcast and what are you working on currently that people can look I- forward to? Thought we were going to have a raffle. Okay. I guess not. Um, <laughs> presently, um, redoing 1986 and seven, pretty much wrapping up with that, going through a lot of Yoko Ono and her tour. Man, there's just so much star piece, Dad. <laughs> it's actually not too bad. The musicianship is fantastic, actually. But yeah, I'm wrapping up with that and um, Trying to bring it up to 1995 or six, where I do the Twilight Zone loop and back to square one, and then tie it into 1965, and then off to another project. (laughs) Oh wow! Those live gigs, Yoko's band kind of cooks. They were playing that that double fantasy medley was really good and stuff. It just she at the end of the day was never going to be an arena act, so I don't know what the thinking was there but yeah it's been really interesting i love the 80s we're in sort of a lull right now because after broad street mccartney doesn't retreat in fact he goes into the studio like the next day and starts working on <laughs> press to play but he does not release an album for a pretty long stretch by paul standards it's a year and a half before we get press to play so it's been interesting living in this time without a new paul release other than spies like us which wound up being incredibly successful I guess. I think I heard John Landis. Is that him? Never liked the song. That's why he mm. stuck it at the end. <laughs> I love that song. I think Chris hates it, if I'm recording I hate correctly. that song, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm with you, but up to the end. The end part, I think, really jams. Uh, it's like us. Yeah. Uh-huh. But that's really what Yesterday and Today is about. It's just doing actually what Luca did in his book with taking all the different type of interviews of the time or as best as you can get it as the earliest you can get it but actually getting the audio and making a story out of it but that's why you know dad i know you're being modest about your collection behind you but that's the collection that feeds the the program it's about using these things we've amassed over the years to actually tell the story so that's what's coming up on yesterday and today chris should we talk about what's next for take it away should we finally admit what everyone's figured out should we finally admit it? <laughs> We're, uh, here, I'll make the announcement. We're shifting focus to Weird Al. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> well, the next season, but uh, <laughs> and then Olivia Newton-John. Uh, no, I, I think the show is going to be more George Harrison-y than it's tended to be going forward. Let's put it that way. Oh, wow. You're still in Teasland. I was just going to come right out and say it. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm not in Teasland. Yeah, we're doing George. Oh, by all means, I'd be quite prepared for that eventuality. And I feel like we're going in some directions we haven't gone before. I don't want to give too many spoilers, but we are doing George beyond that. Not too many spoilers, but we're doing some things we haven't done before. And the conversations, I've been editing the conversations for months, and it was hilarious to me. I thought I had three episodes in the bag, and I had six, because (laughs) that's how much Paul and I have to say, how much pent-up energy there is on this topic. Yeah, we spent 
last year really developing this first season and it's been so great and eye-opening actually particularly looking at all aspects of George's work and the biggest coolest thing for me is you get to hear the start of his writing whereas with Paul and John you don't really there's that big notebook they talk about with all of those really old Lennon McCartney songs when they first got together you know that you're thinking of Lincoln's that kind of stuff which in a lot of ways never even saw the light of day probably never was even put down other than in those get back sessions when they sort of joke play them but with George his entire body of written work is there sitting in the public eye so you can actually see that evolution in a real way so it's been really really cool going through this and I was just very happy and and lucky that Chris uh, entertained the idea we actually came up with it together but I'm a fan of take it away so it's happy I'm happy to participate in the show well and we didn't really consider anyone else for the choice we pretty much converged on George as the the sensible choice there and uh, it's been so interesting because it's a whole different cohort of musicians than we had with Paul so we're kind of dealing with all these fascinating figures and musicians who just would never have come up on the Paul show yeah. So it's, you know, there's a lot of history for us to absorb there, too. Jim Keltner alone could fill an episode. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what's coming up. We're really excited to talk about this finally. Those will be available soon. Thank you, everyone, for the support on both of these shows. It's just, these are obviously labors of love for us. We really appreciate it. And we really appreciate Uh, Luca and Paul, you two for joining us here today on this uh, interview episode. So thanks, everybody. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, Paul and Luca. Appreciate it. Once is a handyman, and what he wants is quick service. Because I am a house owner. I am a house owner. It may be worth something someday. I hear water going through the pipe. I don't actually like sitting down music. Music is ideas. Contact the show, visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at yesterdaypod on Twitter and search Yesterday and Today Podcast on Facebook. See you next time. Dad's sitting in a room right now with in his beetle room and you can see all the memorabilia and autographs and it's actually a sight to behold it's really really cool